the left maintains its position through power and coercion. They silence you, they cancel you, or through indoctrination, through controlling the organs of transmission of ideas. And so there's power to just shining a light. Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. I love every guest. That is really true. This guest I really love because I've been able to vote for him multiple times as he has been in the U.S. Senate from the great state of Texas. He's one of my good friends. Truly, I say this with, with all sincerity, one of the most important conservative leaders of our generation, my friend, Senator Ted Cruz. Thanks for being here. Kevin, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Always great to have you here. It's always great to have guests wearing boots, look like Lucchese's. Uh, they are Lucchese's, and, yeah. I, and I will, if you want, I'll even show you the Senate seal on the oh, front. Oh, man, showing me some leg. Which Senator. you will like, but you'll like the back better, which is the come oh, and take it flag. Indeed. Which I failed to get on camera. Sorry about that. But I can vouch for those of you who are watching. It's, it's there. <laughs> nice boots, Lucchese's as well. Really the only boots to wear. All of that. But, but by the way, the, these featured in a Senate hearing. Oh, really? So we had the FBI testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and they put out a list of signs of extremism and one of the signs of extremism was the come and take it flag <laughs> and i had some harsh words for the uh witness from the fbi but i began my my questioning by pulling off my boot and slamming it on the oh. on, on, on the dais and saying i want to self-report right now yeah it's it's glorious uh it it truly is stunning it's it well it's a great flag. Maybe next time we have you on the, on the show, we'll talk some Texas history. But it does remind me of a quick story, which I'll relate. Before we get into the, your new book, which is the purpose of having you here, and that is a friend of mine, Jessica Anderson, who used to run Heritage Action, sure. you know Jessica, now running Sentinel Action Fund, said, uh, Kevin, I was behind you as you were driving through Capitol Hill to Heritage. I said, how did you know that? She said, well, there was this black diesel truck, bigger than it should be in Washington, D.C., driving not aggressively, but clearly out of frustration behind a slow driver. And it was one of those yellow Virginia plates with the come and take it license plate. And I knew it was you. And I said, well, I've self-identified as a domestic terrorist. Uh, I will tell you a few years ago, my uh, body man at the time was from Louisiana and he had a big four by four truck that he drove me around in. And Heidi and I went to, oddly enough, the Shakespeare Theater Gala, which was a black tie event. Uh, we went with Glenn Youngkin before he was governor. Yeah. Glenn and Suzanne have been friends a long time. Uh, and and so coming out of the event, he put he pulls up, and I'm in a tux, and Heidi's in a long formal ball gown. And this thing is high. Yeah. And she's got a tight dress. She can't possibly climb into it. So I basically had to pick her up and kind of toss her in the, in, in the truck. But I have to say, it was really quite beautiful seeing like a bunch of Washington lobbyists looking in horror at this giant, it was a Louisiana truck just parked right out front. Oh, it's glorious. Yeah. It's glorious. I love going to, to uh, banquets or galas here, parking my truck. My wife and I wait for the valet to bring it around and you can hear the diesel coming. And if there are friends out there, they say, Robert, your, your vehicle's here. That actually, in an interesting and fitting way, is related to your book, Unwoke, How to Defeat Cultural Marxism in America. Because driving big trucks is one way we can defeat cultural Amen. Marxism in America. But I, I really do say this uh, with, with all sincerity. I just finished the book just minutes ago before, before coming down here to see you in the studio. It's excellent. Thank you. Yeah. And, I mean, you don't need me to feed your ego. But it is really excellent. I, look, I had fun writing it. I, yeah, I, I can mean, tell. I, it, it's, 
this is the fourth book I've written, mm-hmm. and I've really enjoyed all, all four of them. And, and this one, look, you and I both know, and, and, and your viewers and listeners know, what's happening in this country right now, this is not normal, this is not okay. Um, our, our country is, is really screwed up right now. And what the book endeavors to do is explain how and why the radical left took over every major institution in America. And, and it really is systemic. And so, as you know, every chapter of the book addresses a different institution. So it starts off with universities. And I, and I think universities, sadly, are where this all started. I, I refer to universities as the Wuhan lab uh, of the woke virus. And it started there, but then it spread to every other institutions. And so each chapter, it goes from universities to K through 12 education, to journalism, to government, to big business, to big tech, to entertainment, and that includes movies, TV, music, sports, to science. And, and then the last chapter uh, focuses on China, because I see China as, as a nexus that is intertwined with every one of these. And, and what the book endeavors to do is explain, number one, how it is that, that each of these institutions became captured, but, but then even more importantly, to lay out a positive, proactive battle plan for how we take them back. Because I think if we don't take them back, our, our country's lost. Well, and I often say that in conversations about the work that, that Heritage does, and, and you and I have talked about this over the years, that yes, of course, what we do in public policy is important. What we do on the Hill, what we do in state legislatures, some of the legal scholarship we do, of course, is, is vital. But to me, in my two years here, the most important thing we do and that we have done in 50 years is help to revitalize, I hope, help to revitalize America's institutions. Yeah, yeah. And, and because in other words, and, and I think you more than anyone else can appreciate this, not just being a member of the Senate, but also because you pay attention to so many of those institutions, what we're doing in politics and policy means a lot less. In other words, it'd be a lot less successful if we aren't able to repair these diseased institutions. And your chapter on universities, having been a college president, having survived a graduate program at the University of Texas, which we've joked about too, is is really spot on. And and I think a couple of the stories, one of them being the speech you gave at UC Berkeley <laughs> when you were Solicitor General of Texas was really telling, right? Well, so that was back, I think it was 2007. And, and I was asked to give the commencement speech at Berkeley at their school of government. And I described the story where, where it was really a, a kind of random, the head of the school of government decided that they had never had, or not, at least not in recent years, never had a Republican. And he decided to be a really a radical and invite a Republican, and his problem is he didn't know anybody. And so he ended up actually calling um, uh, a professor at UT, and saying, all right, you're in Texas, you've got to know Republicans. Like, like how, how do we find a Republican to come to Berkeley? And it so happened the year before I had given the commencement at UT at their school of government. And, and so the professor said, well, look, the guy we had last year, he, he, he did an okay job, why don't you call him? And, and so that's how I got the call. And, and I went and did it, and I described how at the time, uh, you know, I had protests, which, which in hindsight doesn't seem surprising, but then it was it was surprising at the time. I was not well-known at all. I was not uh, in elected office. I was the Solicitor General of Texas, so that's an appointed position. Uh, and it, it it's the chief lawyer for the state in front of the U.S. Supreme Court and all the state and federal appellate courts. And in my commencement of speech, you know, I struggled with, all right, what do I talk about? 
Um, and I ended up giving a speech on diversity, but intellectual diversity. And I stood up and I said, listen, number one, you know, I began by praising Berkeley. I said, listen, Berkeley has a long tradition of passionate involvement in public policy and political life, and that's fantastic. Uh, and I urge the students, don't lose that. Don't, don't allow the fire in your belly to change the world to dissipate. Don't just fade into middle-aged mediocrity where you're paying your mortgage and you give up on the desire to change the world. But what I also said is, is too many of us, we view those who disagree with us, we caricature them as either stupid or evil. And listen, are there stupid and evil people on the planet? Yes, but not that many. Uh, and, and what I urged the students, is I said, listen, you need to be able to understand how someone of good morals, of good intellect, how your mother could take the issue you care most passionately about and come to 180 degrees the opposite conclusion. And I said, until you can understand that, you're never going to persuade anyone in life, in law, in politics, in business. Uh, and that's something we've, we've lost. And, and one of the points I make, it used to be a part, when I was first elected to the Senate in 2012, it was a regular spring tradition that you'd sit down and you'd look at, all right, where do I want to give a commencement speech? And that was kind of a fun thing of, all right, let's go do, that's disappeared. Major universities no longer have Republicans give commencement speeches. Nobody does. It's, it's, not, it's not just me. There's no Republican senator. There's no Republican governor. They've just disappeared. It is only Democrats who are welcome on campus. And it's one of the many examples where when you and I were at school, look, schools were always left. But there is a uniformity, a, an oppressive censorship, a demand that anything contrary to the official propaganda must be silenced. And I think that's very dangerous. It is. And, you know, I could make a sarcastic quip about college presidents wanting to keep their jobs. That's why they don't make the invitation. But that's actually true because there are examples of faculty senates voting votes of no confidence in presidents. Why? Because they invited not even a Republican or conservative senator, but someone who might be slightly right of center. Look, an example I talk about in, in the chapter on journalism is the New York Times, the editor of the editorial page of the New York Times, lost his job. Why? Because he published one op-ed from a Republican senator, Tom Cotton. It happened to be an op-ed I didn't, I didn't even particularly agree with, but, but he, and by the way, James Bennett is a knee-jerk liberal whose brother is a Democrat senator from Colorado. Like, nobody on the planet believed that, that Bennett agreed with the op-ed. But it was, it was during the, the Black Lives Matter and Antifa riots, and Cotton argued for, for calling up the military and sending the military to put the riots down. And Bennett made the decision to publish it, to acknowledge that was a viewpoint that some people believed. And the woke 20-somethings at the paper rose up, and they terminated him because of it. So, so you talk, and I have a lot of examples of that that I discuss in the book, where it is, it is orthodoxy and obedience that is maintained through force uh, and oppression. That's exactly what it is. And, and, and you recount how it is that newsrooms came to be co-opted by the, you know, the Gramscian notion of the leftist march through the institutions. And, and 
we, you and I can can spend the time we have talking about all the examples of of oppression, but the audience knows them well. Yeah. What I really liked about the chapter is your hopefulness at the end that, like other institutions, you and I, I think hopefully most of the audience would agree that we can reclaim them, but it, it, it can't be with some um, any level of passivity. What would you say needs to happen in order for conservatives to reclaim at least some additional news organizations? So every chapter of the book ends with how we fight back. And, and so I tried, that was a discipline to not make the chapter just bitching about it's all terrible, but to say, okay, how do we fix it? Because that would be it? pretty depressing. Uh, it, it would be, but uh, look, I... I found writing this book optimistic, which in some ways you wonder, you say, okay, every institution uh, is is a mess. How is that optimistic? Because I give examples of where we're winning and basically say, take winning strategies and replicate them. And so there, there are basically three buckets of tools that that I advocate using. The first is simply light and transparency. And Look, the ideas of the radical left, of the cultural Marxists, they're, they're wildly unpopular. No rational person supports abolishing the police. No reasonable person supports open borders and the chaos at our southern border. No rational person celebrates the atrocities of Hamas terrorists. It is only radical leftists. And by the way, all rational people know what a woman is. That, 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 that is not a trick question among normal people. It is only the left maintains its position through power and coercion. They silence you, they cancel you, or through indoctrination, through controlling the organs of transmission of ideas. And so there's power to just shining a light. So, for example, on universities, um, I talk about what happened at Stanford Law School, where Judge Kyle Duncan went to speak, the judge on the Fifth Circuit. I know Kyle well. And he was greeted by radical leftists who screamed, who cursed at him, who yelled epithets, who screamed, I hope your children are raped. I mean, I mean, it was horrific. And they shut down his speech. They prevented him from speaking. There were people there that wanted to hear him. And the radical leftists shut down the speech. And, and, and as that proceeded, a dean from Stanford showed up. Uh, and, and the judge, I think, somewhat naively believed, oh, good, the dean will, will enforce their free speech policy and let me complete my speech. Completely wrong. As you know, the dean was the diversity, equity, and inclusion dean, and she gave this bizarre written-out speech that she had prepared, uh, siding with the mob. And, and the phrase she uses over and over again is, is the juice worth the squeeze? And she explains that whatever words he was going to say, that they represented physical violence to the woke students in the room. Now, here's where truth and transparency and sunlight matters. In response to this, I did two things. Number one, I wrote to the president of Stanford and the dean of the law school, uh, calling, on their, uh, calling on the dean to be fired and for there to be real repercussions. You know what they did, shockingly? They fired the dean. It was shocking. They initially suspended her without pay, and then they terminated her. But secondly, and I think this piece was more important, I wrote a letter to the Texas State Bar. Now, these are law students. These are not just, you know, undergrads who, who are, are out protesting. They're studying to be lawyers. To be a lawyer, you have to be admitted to the bar, and part of being admitted to the bar is a character and fitness test. 
if any lawyer behaved as they did, if you tried in a court of law to scream and curse at a, at a, at a judge, you would be held in contempt, you would be arrested, and you would be taken to jail. That, that lawyers cannot behave the way they behaved. And so I wrote to the Texas State Bar and said, Texas should impose additional standards for graduates of Stanford University to make sure they have not participated in harassing judges and other speakers. And astonishingly, the Chief Justice of the Texas Supreme Court, Nathan Hecht, who you and I both know well, he's a very good man, wrote me back and said he agreed. And henceforth, the Texas Bar would impose additional standards for graduates of Stanford Law School and Yale Law School, which has had similar incidents. Because those universities have demonstrated they're incapable of policing their own students and preventing harassing and threatening behavior, the Texas State Bar would inquire separately of that. I encourage, I say, look, other red states ought to do the same. That's the power of sunlight. The three buckets I urge are, number one, transparency and sunlight. Number two, and this is really one and two at the same time, increasing the costs of going woke. On the cost-benefit ledger, increasing the downside. And, th and this is, you know, look, if you're a, a law student and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to harass a speaker, well, if you can't be admitted to the bar, that suddenly changes your calculus. Um, that is, particularly with corporate America and big business, that is a major strategy. And, and the third... Because you asked about journalism, and I, and I, I want to answer that in particular. The third bucket that I urge is that conservatives and libertarians with resources, people who have been successful in business, need to invest in either creating new avenues or purchasing existing organs of transmission of ideas. Buy a TV station, buy a radio station, buy a movie studio, buy a book publishing house, buy a record label. And, and the example I point to is Elon Musk's buying Twitter. It's the single most important step for free speech in decades. And the problem, and this is something you understand and, and, your, and your listeners and viewers understand, but, but many don't. Conservatives have systematically undervalued ideas. So an example I point to. A number of years back, Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post for $300 million. Now, $300 million is a lot of money. You don't have that, I don't have that. But you know what? There are actually quite a few conservative businessmen and women who, who could either spend that money or raise that money, and they didn't do so. Now, Bezos didn't buy the Washington Post because he was bullish on the long-term profitability of print media. He bought it because he wanted to own the commanding heights of public discourse. And too many conservatives, they say, well, you know, I could earn an additional half percent rate of return on manufacturing widgets in North Carolina. So I'm going to invest in that instead. We can't cede the commanding heights of ideas. And, and so those are the three tools I advocate. And, and if we do those, I, I think we can fight back. Yeah, and I, I really keyed in on that example you mentioned of, of Bezos because, <clears throat> well, you, you, you're right, $300 million is a lot of money. That's not an impossible sum for a, a pretty large number of Americans. And, and sort of like Elon Musk, we don't even necessarily need them to be conservative. We just need them to have a commitment to fairness and to free speech. It's simply believing in debate and discourse and, and 
even-handedness is a radically conservative <laughs> idea because the left does not brook dissent. Um, look, I, I defend all the time the rights of people to criticize me, to attack me. Um, you know, when social media was deplatforming Alex Jones, I'm not an Alex Jones fan. I think the guy's a nut. Likewise. And, and he has blasted me repeatedly. He's particularly fond of going on the radio and accusing my father of killing JFK. It's crazy. Uh, which, which, boy, ticks my dad off. Um, as, as it should. <laughs> and, and actually, he's, you know, he, he, my dad has asked me, he said, what can I do? Can I sue him? And, and I said, Dad, no. And I said, listen, it's, it's like the old adage about don't wrestle in the mud with a pig. Because if you do, you get covered in mud and the pig enjoys it. Like, like there's no upside to, to, to doing so. But I vocally defended Alex Jones, who just, I don't think he's ever said a kind word about me, but I believe in free speech. The left never does that. No, and, and, and as, as you write about in, in the book, their training ground for that is universities. I want to ask you about one element of the book before we, we begin to wrap up, Senator. And, and this was truly moving. Your prologue is, is focused on your dad's story in yeah. Cuba. And I've met your dad. Um, I would say that was very enjoyable. Um, I was about to say my favorite member of the Cruz family, but that's not true. That would be Heidi, your I, wonderful wife. I, I, if, if my dad ever ran against me, I would lose badly. And if Heidi ever ran against me, I'd lose even worse. Yeah, you'd be trounced. Yeah. But and to be honest, I'd vote for both of them, too. So I'm, I'm at best number three in the, in the Cruz family. But, but you're still all right, Senator. <laughs> just, just to be clear, uh, in the introduction chapter after the prologue, j just to, to sort of tease the question here, you write, my father admitted he was wrong after spending his early years devoted to a cause that he did not fully understand, which was the Castro Revolution. Rafael Cruz looked around him, saw the terror that Marxism had wrought in his home country, and changed his mind. How did your dad influence your life and your conservatism? Yeah. It, it, enormously. Um, so I opened the book with, with telling my father's story, and, and my dad... Uh, was born in Cuba, grew up in Cuba, and and he fought in in the Cuban Revolution, and and he was he was 14 when he started fighting. He, he, he fought alongside Fidel Castro, and and it's it's interesting. My father tells me today, he says, "Look, that was the revolution. It was 14 and 15 year old boys who didn't know any better." And and one of the principles, Marxists always 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 start with the kids. You look at every communist revolution on the face of the planet, it began with teenagers. It's teenagers who are young and idealistic and impassioned, and they haven't lived long enough to have any wisdom, to have any judgment, to have the sense to question what they're being indoctrinated with. And, and it's not an accident that the Marxists have started with universities and then K-12 through education. And, and, and I describe my father as a teenager. He was imprisoned in Cuba. He was tortured in Cuba. And, and he fled, and he fled in, in 1957. He came to Austin, Texas. He came to go to the University of Texas, and uh, he was class 61. And, and he showed up. He was 18. He had nothing. He couldn't speak English. He washed dishes, making 50 cents an hour. He actually washed dishes. You, you know where he, where he washed dishes. It's a place called the Toddle House, which is in Austin. It's the TCBY that's on MLK, Used to be the toddle, and apparently oh, they're knocking it down. I, I yeah, was, I've heard that recently. I'm really dismayed. That's that's like where my dad washed dishes in 1957, it's and they're unacceptable. About to knock the building down. But two stories that I tell in the beginning of the book. 
One is when my father got to Texas, he learned English very quickly. And he went around and began speaking. Uh, this would be 1958. Uh, at Rotary Clubs and Kiwanis Clubs and just lunch gatherings of business people. And he was speaking and advocating for Fidel Castro. He was advocating the revolution. He was a 19-year-old revolutionary, and he was... And, and Batista, who was the dictator in Cuba, was corrupt. He was cruel. He was in bed with the mafia. He was a bad guy. And the revolution succeeds in 1959, so two years after my dad comes to Texas. And Castro comes into power, he announces he's a communist, he begins executing people, he begins torturing people, and the Cuban people discover that they went from one SOB to an even worse SOB, that as bad as Batista was, Fidel Castro was much, much worse. And my father sat down and he made a list of every place he'd spoken, and he made a point of he went back to them, and he stood in front of the same people and he said, I misled you. He said, I didn't do so knowingly. I didn't know I was doing so. But I did so nonetheless. I urge you to support what is evil. And he said, for that, I'm truly sorry. And, and when I was a little kid, my dad told me that story over and over again. And there's a seriousness and reality. Look, I hate communists. They are, Marxism is the single greatest force for evil in the history of humanity. More people have been murdered, more people have been tortured, more people have suffered in poverty and misery because of Marxism than any political or economic doctrine that has ever been invented by mankind. But a second story I tell, again in the, in the prologue, is about my grandmother, my abuela. So she was a sixth grade teacher in Cuba. And she told me about how when Castro took over, one of the very first things he did is he sent his military into the elementary schools. And his soldiers would go into kindergartens and first grades. And they would tell all the little children. They'd say, close your eyes. Pray to God for candy. And the kids would all do so. And they'd open their eyes and there'd be no candy. And then the soldiers would tell the children. They'd say, close your eyes and pray to Fidel Castro for candy. And the kids would do so. And while their eyes would clo were closed, the soldiers would very quietly put a piece of candy on every desk. That is what Marxism is, targeting five-year-olds. It is indoctrination. Marxism wants to destroy your allegiance to God, to family, to anything other than the all-powerful state that controls you. And, and I think it, it is truly a blessing to be the child of, of someone who fled oppression because it it makes you appreciate the urgency. If we don't take these institutions back, if we don't fight to save our country, we can lose freedom here. Great nations rise and fall. It's not guaranteed that, that, that America will survive. I believe we will, but we will because you and I and, and your viewers and, and people who love freedom stand up and act and fight to preserve it. And you clearly... As a, as a closing comment, maybe quick question, have faith that our fellow Americans understand that urgency, that even though they may be a little discouraged at times, with good reason, yeah. it's okay as long as we channel that discouragement into real action, not just in policy and politics, but perhaps most importantly, even you would argue, based on this book, 
fighting for our institutions? Absolutely, yes. Look, institutions are enormously... By the way, if I could have just one institution back, I'd have entertainment. As important as universities are, or journalism, or even big business, if you could give me just one, I would take entertainment, because I think entertainment is the most pernicious. Movies, television, it is... You look at how many Americans right now are somewhere between ignorant and apathetic and it's sad and part of it is because hollywood because tv because music brainwashes them to not worry about what matters to 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 be the opiate of the masses and it is powerful the influence of culture it's it's why i really focus on look ideas matter and particularly ideas that that are subtly transmitted. And listen, you've devoted your life to fighting in the arena of ideas. You understand heritage exists to fight in the arena of ideas. TPPF, where you came from before, exists to fight in in the arena of ideas. It, It is incredibly important. I'll tell you, the reason I wrote this book is to fight in the arena of ideas. The reason I do a podcast three days a week, and it takes a lot of time, as you know, uh, verdict with Ted Cruz. I, I do that podcast to fight in the arena of ideas. But this book was written. I, you know, I'll mention we're 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 in the holiday season. Christmas is coming up. Um, if I can make a shameless plug, that's why you're here. Uh, that that is true. I, this book. Let me encourage you. Go online. Go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Books a Million or wherever you want, and buy the book. And and don't just buy one copy because it makes I think a great Christmas gift. Buy it for your best friend. Buy it for your crazy left-wing neighbor to try to knock some sense into him. Or even better, buy it for your kids or buy it for your grandkids. Because this book is designed to, number one, help inform people and educate them. But number two, to give real practical steps that you can do to fight to take these institutions back. And it's also written, I, I hope and think, in a way that it, it's not a dry, abstract academic book. It's, it's fun. It's filled with stories. The way I like to write books, I tell stories. Be, and you know why I tell stories? Because that's how the human brain operates. Think about your memories. So you have a few sort of facts that are stored. You know, your times tables. You know, 1492 and 1776. You have a couple of sort of facts that are memorized, but I would venture to say north of 90% of what is stored in your brain are stories. Your memories are all stories. It's the way we interact as human beings. And so I think stories are powerful because that because they fight they fight in the arena of how our brain internalizes and stores ideas. I will Second, two things you just said. First, the importance of stories. And I think as conservatives especially, we need to really lean into being storytellers. But, and I was going to say this even if, if you didn't. We don't have anyone on this show with a book who, whose book I've not read and whose book I'm not willing to buy myself and encourage people to do that. And that's, I mean, I was kind of picking on you, but that's why you're here. But you're here to promote ideas, and, and the book is really good. But let me close by saying thank you for the book and thank you for your friendship. Thank you for being a, a great leader of this country, Senator Ted Cruz. Thank you, Kevin. Folks, get out and buy the book. Read it. 
as the senator said, buy multiple copies. I've got no skin in that game other than wanting to do what you want to do, which is to retake this great republic. Thanks for being part of this show. I'm glad that you were part of this, and I'm sure you enjoyed the conversation. Take care. We will win. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.